Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue nine of our comics bracket. Oh, if you're tuning in having skipped the last two for trigger warning reasons, don't worry, none of that in this one. If you want to know who won, uh, it was The Crow and Watchmen. Anyway, back to the show. This week, we will be discussing once again 1997's Men in Black, as well as 2002's Road to Perdition. Since we've already summarized the plots of both of these films, we're going to get into more of their history as franchises and where they started off as comics and grew from there. For Men in Black, in 1990, it was written and created by Lowell Cunningham, illustrated by Sandy Carruthers, and published by Airsail Comics, and that included the first three issues. The next year, Airsail was acquired by Malibu Comics, and they released three more issues titled Men in Black Book 2. In 1992, the movie rights were optioned by Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald, a Hollywood producer couple. Things were in development for quite a while, but in the meantime, in 1994, Malibu Comics was then acquired by Marvel Comics. Then, 1997 hits. The film is released. It's directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. You may recognize his name from the Adam Samley films, Get Shorty, or a film he would direct after Men in Black, Wild Wild West. In conjunction, Marvel releases a number of one-shots, a prequel, a graphic novelization, and a sequel to the film to promote it. And later that year, an animated series that was loosely based off of the film premiered. And it ran until 2001 with four seasons and 53 episodes. That's a long time for an animated show. Yeah, it did reasonably well. I remember watching it quite a bit as a kid. Pretty solid. Uh, really, the only major difference is that K and J are still partners along with L, who is another member of the MIB. I remember watching one episode when I was pretty young where someone was on some sort of dome of energy that melted their insides and traumatized me a lot. Oh yeah, the art style was kind of grotesque, but it worked really well it was kind of this halfway point between the art of the original comics and the style of the film then after the animated series finishes up 2002 sees the release of men in black 2 which is a commercial success but is widely panned by critics okay he's a bonchinian <sighs> i remember that one another 10 years passes and in 2012 men in black 3 is released once again, it's a commercial success, but is garnering less derision from critics, mostly due to Josh Brolin's acting chops and his role as Agent K in the past, because this one, of course, involves time travel. You know, I don't have no problem pimp slapping the shiznit out of Andy Warhol. What? I didn't see that one. Was it any good? I have also not seen it. Okay. I barely remember two. If this moves on, we will watch at least one of those. It's not two. <laughs> <laughs> Then, in 2019, two film nerds talk about Men in Black on their podcast and mention that a spinoff, MIP International, starring Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson, and directed by F. Gary Gary, who you may know from The Italian Job, Straight Outta Compton, or Fate of the Furious, will release in June of this year. Yeah, Men in Black is definitely a franchise that lends itself really well to just making more of it because it's a very simple premise with a lot of ways it can go. We're not talking about Men in Black as a franchise, at least not right now. We're talking about Men in Black 1997, again. Mm -hmm. Watching it the first time, I'm like, oh, this is a bundle of laughs. I'm having a pretty good time. There's some stuff to critique, but oh, it's a pretty good time. This time, too, I was finding more and more holes. Same. I also noticed some new things that I really liked. But yeah, there, there are definitely some holes. I think this time I was 
much more critical of the pacing. It really felt like there was a lot of setup and world building in the first act that we didn't necessarily need. And there were a few scenes that were dragged out, like the chase scene with Jay and the alien at the beginning, some of the gags in MIB, like when he releases that glowing ball that bounces around, that goes on a little bit too long. And then act three kind of feels stretched out. The final confrontation between the agents and the bug feels really empty. It's got that kind of, this isn't even my final form thing. Yeah, and there's just not a whole lot of action. It's kind of the bug swatting at Jay until he annoys it into, okay, fine, I'm just going to eat you. It's not really much of a fight scene. Part of that is that I don't know if there's really all that much payoff for Jay's arc. His whole thing in the movie is he's kind of the new fresh eyes with more street smarts and sarcasm as opposed to K and Zed who are like more kind of wry and seen it all and old worldy. And there's a bit of a changing of the guard theme going on, but there's not something where none of them can solve the problem and only Jay with his unique perspective can. It's just, you know, him being annoying, which some of the gags are okay, but also there's a line where it's like, you know, y'all look alike. So I guess Jay learned how to use racism as a weapon. Great. I don't yeah. know. It's weird. Yeah, I think acts one and three feel really bloated and I wish there was more meat in act two and I think I would have enjoyed them playing up the detective work and the mystery about what's going on a little bit more. I love Nafrim in this. He's having a great time. But I think if we had two or three less cutaways to him and a few more of K and J figuring out what's happening around him, that might have been a lot more fun. Yeah. And you could have still incorporated those and give the audience a sense of what's going on, but do it as flashbacks, like them interviewing witnesses and finding out what exactly happened on the scene, that sort of stuff. I think that would have worked well. Mm, for sure. You mentioned that there's nothing that pays off for Jay. Like, he doesn't have this new perspective that is what wins the day. Although, he's kind of the one figuring everything out here. He's the one who makes the connection to the cat being named Orion. Although, it really should have been much more obvious. The first time we see the cat's collar up close, it has Orion stitched across it. Mm-hmm. when he's hissing at Vincent D'Onofrio's character leaving the restaurant. And then they go to the jewelry store and there's literally a wall of fancy jeweled collars for him that also say Orion on them. Mm-hmm. And in the cafe scene, the Archelian princess, You can kill us both, but you will not find the galaxy. And the camera cuts to Orion just chilling on the ground there. Yeah, and so it's really easy for the audience to piece together what's going on long before the detectives do. And that's never a good sign for a mystery narrative when you figure things out way before the protagonists who are it's their job to do this do. Yeah. Ideally, you want to do it a minute to 30 seconds before they figure it out. I mean, We've also seen this film a few times, so that probably helps a bit. But, yeah. yeah. And Jay also figures out where the bug is going at the end, mm-hmm. the old ships and all that jazz. Yeah, from the World's Fair. Right. But none of that seems related to his character. It's just like, this is a, a thing he can do is that he's observant, which is fine. But him being observant isn't necessarily the contrast that we're seeing with his characterization. Last time we had some criticisms about Jay and him not really having to give up anything to join the MIB, even though they treat it as this weighty decision. It doesn't seem like he has to leave anything behind. And I think if they would have shifted the perspective 
it would have worked a lot better. We see Jay prior to joining the AIB and the way he is interacting and treated by the NYPD, and he is clearly very talented and is good at his job, but he's being stymied by the internal organization, whether that's due to he's kind of young and a loose cannon, or whether it has to do with institutional racism or whatnot. Jay feels stymied there. And then he gets introduced to the MIB organization and he's tested and he excels in comparison to a number of other reasonably qualified candidates. And he also sees how diverse the organization is. They're literally dealing with extraterrestrials. To me, the better way to kind of get Jay in there is to have him realize I can do good work here and I'm not going to have to deal with a lot of the bigotry and prejudice that I would have had to in the NYPD. I think that would have been a good in, but at the same time, we still have a problem that there don't seem to be any alien men in black. I, I feel like if you're going to have a, have someone policing a community, you need to have some of the ground workers be part of that community. I hate to compliment Bright. Fairy lives don't matter today. But I appreciate that they understand the needs of having an orc as part of the police force that are policing the orcs. I will say that we do have some extraterrestrials who are working for the MIB. We have the worms with like they're in the coffee in the break room. We've got the twins. They also talk about how most of the aliens that at least started coming to Earth are refugees. So I'm getting the sense that quite a few of their hires probably are as well. But yeah, I would have liked to see field agents who were aliens. But in general, we don't see a whole lot of other field agents. It's Zed who is leader at headquarters. K and J, and then at the end of the film, L. And really just having one person in a men in black suit with four heads or whatever, like just in the background would be enough for me to be like, oh, okay, cool, fine, carry on. And that kind of ties into, I guess, this watch through was kind of more uncomfortable with the portrayals of policing in this. And I know that part of the genre is, you know, loose cannon cops. Part of the fun is them being reckless and snarky and doing action stuff. But the men in black don't really have any government oversight. They have incredible technology, some of which they're using with impunity and not a lot of supervision, even within the Men in Black itself. Part of the things that make Jay heroic are him just going off and jumping into cars and shooting through doors and stuff. These are all necessary for the action hero plot things, but looking at it more broadly, I'm not down with this being what police are. But also I know that, you know, it's a staple of the genre, and if I look at that too closely, I have to start looking at every superhero movie ever, and I don't wanna. So we don't have to dig into this too much, but I want to point out that there's a discomfort there. Mm. Speaking of discomfort, like I noticed it last time, but I think it, like for whatever reason, it bugged me more this time, but there's a lot of implied necrophilia about Dr. Laurel. Oh yeah, that thing. You know what I like to do sometimes when it's really late? And it's very uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with it either. Like it's It's there. Yeah, there's also a lot of her... How do I want to put this? Um... Her overt sexuality making trouble for the plot. There's the whole implied necrophilia stuff, and she flirts with Jay quite a bit. This all kind of comes to a head, though, where Edgar has her taken hostage, but he's hiding under the table, and Jay is being sexist and obtuse. There's something I need to show you. Mm, slow down, girl. You ain't gotta hit the gas like that. And that scene that goes on for about 18 jokes too many. Yeah, the only good part of that scene is Edgar gagging underneath the table. And I'm just like, 
Same, Edgar. Same. Mm. That bit has not aged well in the 20-some years. Especially when she kind of has this doing a feminist complaint while there's an action scene happening. I feel like a man wrote that. Like, I don't... (laughs) Somehow I know in my heart that that was written by a man. Mm. Well, if you weren't coming on like some drunken prom date... God, that is so typical. Anytime a woman shows the slightest hint of sexual independence... I want to shut up! I made a joke last time that this is not good onboarding for a new job, but who boy, it super isn't. Jay definitely doesn't understand how a lot of the weapons work, how some of the culture works, the basic protocols for dealing with Arkelian royalty, etc. He's not ready to do Kay's job. So when Kay's like hand printing a replacement beep, I'm like, oh, Earth is in bad hands. This is not good. I really wish they hadn't put that in there. Because I think if it was just Kay going, ah, I got a lot to learn, kid. And then, you know, pressing a button on the car and it flies or whatever. That could have been fine. It could have just been like a wacky, like first day on a job narrative. But since the whole thing is this, you're my replacement thing. It feels like what the film is saying is what you need for this job is uh, not what you need for this job. And this is going to be reaching beyond the text of the film, but literally every adaption since has been backtracking on that. The animated series made it so that Kay was still an MIB agent, and the second film, a huge plot point, was getting Kay back to help Jay with the plot. The denuralizer thing. Yeah, and then... Three is heavily focused around K and an enemy of his going back in time to try and kill him before he stops him. That all makes sense. Yeah. It really feels like they realized that that was a real big mistake and they've been kind of backpedaling ever since. If the second act had been longer or whatever, if it was like over a series of months, Jake gets better as we have like a training montage or whatever, that could be a really nice ending story. I like the idea that K gets to have a happily ever after. It doesn't get eaten by an insect or something. He gets go home to a wife that he spies on with the surveillance camera that he really shouldn't have that's fine it's fine it's fine they can just do that no oversight it's fine um it's a a messy plot point yeah Yeah. although while we're talking about k there's a thing that i picked up on this watch through that i really liked is there's this distinct shift in k's demeanor after he realizes that they're dealing with a bug Mm, yeah he's constantly exasperated and he stops joking around and he's barely putting up with Jay's antics. Really good example of this scene is when Jay is prying into his history and love life and how stoic and angry Kay is about some of the comments that Jay's making. I think it's a really good example of that shift. Mm-hmm. Ah. Well, you know what they say, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Try it. There is, like, one counterpoint to that, and that's Kay, like, singing along to Elvis in the car as Jay has not put on his seatbelt and is fumbling around the car as it's going upside down in the tunnel. Which, to be fair, is a very funny scene. Yeah. It's a good scene. It just, it kind of blows the whole, oh, this is serious now, I need to do this because I'm working with an inexperienced partner sort of thing. I feel like you should send the experienced agents for this end of the world thing and let Jay work up to this kind of thing. I mean, Kay is the most experienced agent they've had. He's one of the first MIB agents. He was there at first contact. Oh, for sure. One other thing that I I picked up this time that I really enjoy is the bookend parallels between how Agent D leaves Men in Black at the very beginning of the film. They're beautiful, aren't they? What? The stars. We never just look anymore. No. I'll tell you, Kay. I will miss the chase. No, D. You won't. 
it literally then cuts to Jay chasing down the alien in New York. It's a really good cut. But then the callback where Kay is looking up the stars and Jay is asking him that same question, what are you doing? You know, telling him, I haven't been training a partner, I've been training a replacement, blah, blah. Kay then says, See you around, Jay. No. You won't. It's really good book ending, and I like it, even though I don't like the plot point of K being neuralized, it's still good. Right. Even if I complain about a lot of the plot points of this movie, there are no scenes I think are particularly bad. All the individual pieces are good. Yeah. yeah. The most I will say, mo- like, there are a number of scenes that I'd probably trim down a oh, bit, sure. but I wouldn't, like, completely get rid of. Right. Maybe the shaking the dog scene. I think that's kind of... Yeah. Um, that makes me uncomfortable. It does give us the amazing line where Jay's like, uh, the, the dog goes my friend money. It is a very good line. Yeah. I get what the scene is going for. But again, this cop is shaking down a perp in broad daylight and there will probably be no repercussions for him. Yeah. Like if you were to do that scene now, it probably a better way to do that is like making him beg for a treat sort of deal. Yeah. I'm going to pronounce all my stuff from Men in Black. Let's jump over to Road to Perdition. So a man is walking down a road. He sees two little girls playing with a bouncing ball and it makes him remember a time when he presented his son with two options a sword and a ball if the son went for the sword he would train him in the ways of the warrior if he went for the ball he would know the son was weak and would send him to be with his mother in heaven he went for the sword and that is why the son is around so begins lone wolf and cub by kazuo koiki and illustrated by gozeki kojima it's a manga from the 70s it's really really popular many adaptions over time into movies and tv shows it's hard to give you a definitive number there's been a lot of recutting movies for different audiences whole thing don't worry about it it's well-known. It's also notable for having the longest on-page fight scene in a comic book lasting for 178 pages. That sounds awesome. I know. This is what I was doing instead of doing the research to prepare this section um, was just like reading a bit of this and like, oh, this is good. And I just kept going. It's gorgeous. The art is really beautiful and makes uses of these cool two-page spreads that put the main character alone either in a field or a a town or against opponents and it really gives you a sense for the isolation this character is feeling anyway the plot of the manga is that a shogun enforcer is double crossed and he and his son go off on the road killing a bunch of people to not get killed themselves you may have noticed this is rather similar to road to perdition this is intentional max allen collins who wrote road to perdition the comic in 1998 has said this was 100% a love letter to Lone Wolf and Cub, which, fair enough. Fun fact, Max Allen Collins also wrote the novelization for the Dick Tracy movie. Huh, that tracks. The comic reminds me a lot of the Dick Tracy movie in that it's a lot of kind of broad archetypes and violence as opposed to in-depth characterization. It's not that the comic is particularly bad, but viewed next to the movie, I feel like the movie has stronger characterization. The comic book is a lot more just man walks into a room, does a gun violence, and then walks away to a church to confess, and then does some more gun violence afterwards and comes back to confess again. It's like me playing a paladin in a game ever. <laughs> he moved the story from feudal era Japan to depression era Midwest and based it on real life interactions with John Patrick Looney, who was a real person who actually had a falling out and his son was killed by a former worker that had a falling out with him and all that jazz. And was connected to Al Capone. Yeah. So there's an element of truth in there, but it was abstracted and made into a different person so that he could tell his own story and it wasn't too biographical. Beholden to the truth. Right. And it was 
well received. People liked it. There are a number of sequels and spin-offs and things. Several generations of this family had to keep going to perdition to do some violence to somebody to reclaim their honor or their wife's in their fridge or whatever. You know, the things that people do violence for in comic reasons. Yeah, I think um, Michael Sr.'s grandson has to go off to Vietnam. Yeah, and then come back and do some violence to gang people. Yep. That's, that's Return to Perdition. There's also Road to Purgatory and Road to Paradise. Lots of roads, lots of biblical allegories. Anyway, it got made into a movie by Sam Mendes and Conrad Hall, his cinematographer, who I'll get to in a bit. They're fresh off of American Beauty, but they've also made good movies. I mentioned Conrad Hall, or specifically Conrad L. Hall, because he died from cancer a year after the movie was released, and so the film is not dedicated to him, which, fair enough. This guy had been working for almost 50 years. He was wary about working on this film because he didn't want to make a film glorifying violence, and he knew he could trust Sam Mendes to not do that. And so that's part of why all the violence happens for a reason and it's all character-based as opposed to gratuitous ultra-violence. I like the cinematography in this movie. It's very pretty. I've read some interviews with him. He seems like a stand-up guy and I'm sad we lost him, but I'm glad he had a good career. That's my, that's my story for Under <laughs> Perdition, which honestly feels like an Oscar bait biopic and not a comic book movie. Finding out that it was based on somewhat realish people made sense because this really feels like it was a biopic. Road to Perdition is very unique amongst comic book films because of how they decided to adapt it and they really dug into the source material and understood it and adapted it to a place of prestige as opposed to wanting to adapt it for mass market appeal and to make lots of money, which is what a lot of these comic book adaptations have done. Right. And that's really interesting to me. And it's also really sad because I also know that when this came out, it was actually beaten at the box office by Men in Black 2. Okay, he's a bunch idiot. In Men in Black 2's second week. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Huh. It's... I'm always going to be salty about that. <laughs> I know, right? Watching it, it definitely has all the markings of those prestige Oscar bait films. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of really big name actors in it. You've got Tom Hanks. You've got Daniel Craig. You have... Um, Indie darling Stanley Tucci. Yep. The Tooch. It's also a father and his son and a period piece. And it has all these like artsy shots and yeah. stuff. And Road Trip Edition was not that old when this was adapted, which means it hadn't had time to build up a cult following as a lot of the comic book adaptations have had. Right. We keep saying award baity. I don't want it to sound like this movie is hollow. I think it has a, it's doing a lot of things really well. And there's a lot of just little subtle bits in it that I think are really good. It's award baity, but it... Also, that's partially because people all really cared and wanted to make a good movie. Yeah. Oscar bait or award bait can seem a little bit derogatory. And to a certain extent, it is because we see a lot of the same sort of stuff get nominated over and over and over again. The Academy Awards have a type. Mm -hmm. And the Oscar goes to Driving Miss Daisy. Crash. Green Book. And this just happens to fit into that mold. One thing I thought was really interesting that I noticed in the opening bits, we follow Michael Jr. for a lot of the narrative, and he has this really interesting bouncing back and forth between the childhood innocence of playing in the snow with his brother, but also of stealing a cigar. Stealing a cigar is not at all comparable to leading a criminal empire or anything, but there's definitely that element of badness in him, the, the spark of sin. That, but also this sense that he's getting to a point where he is going to have to transition from boyhood to manhood 
and it makes sense for his age. He's around 12 or so in the film. He's he's going to be hitting puberty soon. He's going to be getting a lot more responsibility and kind of molded into manhood. Honestly, I think a perfect example of Michael Jr. being in that sort of in-between state is during some of the opening scenes of the film where he is smoking a pipe while riding a bike. <laughs> Bless. But also when he's at the wake, he's told not to look at the body, he's supposed to you know, like head down, praying, all that jazz, but he's more curious. And so his curiosity shows that he's both, you know, kind of like young and childlike, but also that he's probably never seen a body before. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a crossing of a threshold thing. Mm-hmm. And this all plays well into his role as a getaway driver. He's clearly not so innocent that he can't do crime stuff if he has to. It makes the through line of stakes for the film, will he become like his father, feel genuine because he definitely has that potential in there. It's not like the, the false dichotomy of, oh, evil is in the blood, uh, darkness is genetic. I think the film does a better job than the comic in having that sense of wondering whether Michael Jr. is going to turn into his father. The comic of Michael Sr. is much more violent and everything is much more gratuitous. And it seems that Michael Jr. has so much further to fall before he gets to where his father is. But in the film, Michael Sr. is softened quite a bit. He's still stoic and reserved, but he's not nearly as violent. And there are a few scenes where you can see how much he actually cares about his son, not so much in the comic. And in the comic, Michael Jr. shoots a dude about two-thirds of the way through. Just, his dad's in trouble, so he fires. That was actually one of Max Allen Collins' critiques of the film, is that there isn't a point where Junior is forced to kill someone, and he felt that it did a bit of a disservice to his work. I understand that from a creator's perspective. However, I think I like the film version better of that. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with kids not having to kill. Another one of the big changes from the film to the comic is the reactions that Michael Sr. and Michael Jr. have to the deaths of their family. And between the film and their comic, their roles are pretty much reversed. In the comic, Michael Jr. finds them and he doesn't know what to do. He's he's frightened and scared and confused. And then Michael Sr. comes in and he laments what happens you can feel the sadness and this twinge of guilt but he also knows that i don't have time because they're going to be coming after my son and they're going to be coming after me Mm -hmm. and he is like and he's very pragmatic about the whole thing and pack your bag we need to leave tell your mother goodbye Mm -hmm. and the exact opposite happens in the comic michael jr finds his brother and mother murdered and he's pretty much completely numb i think in the comic he's just sitting at the dining room table until his father comes home and who his father kind of has a breakdown and wails and whatnot the film allows michael senior to have that moment of breakdown because we give that that cutaway to old man rooney hitting his son and like cursing the day he was born which is a really intense scene holy shit but also it gives us that bit where Daniel Craig looks like some 14-year-old who stole dad's car or something. And it is uncomfortable seeing this man who's okay with doing a murder and a murder of children looking so vulnerable. It lets these characters be complicated in ways that I like. Yeah, I really like how they've made the character of Connor much more complicated in the film. In the comic, he's kind of just crass and callous and is often described as crazy by others. 
I'm so glad that the movie basically removes all of the, he's a crazy person yep. stuff. It's like, it's sure. This guy seems broken, but it's clear. Unhinged, that, maybe? Unhinged. Yeah. But it's clear that he's maybe like a bit of a nihilist or whatever. He just wants things. It's not based on mental ill health or anything. Yeah. We won't get into Jude Law's character for this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even then, like no one ever pathologizes Jude Law's character. Yeah. That's left up to the audience to do. Right. Again, not great, but again, less bad than the comic. Mm-hmm. Connor, I'm intrigued by how he's very much the comedian, but in a more chill world. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, the comedian has this line. It's a joke. It's all a joke. And Daniel Craig has more or less the same line. Because it's also fucking hysterical. They view the world in the same way, just different expressions of it. We're doing a lot of talking about the adaptation as opposed to the film as a whole. I think that's partly because there's a lot of interesting changes that were made. We didn't get to talk about all of them last time. I think one of the big ones that I'm glad they decided against was in the comic, Michael Sr. never goes after Mr. Rooney. He actually sends a FBI agent to attack his compound in New Mexico where he's been hiding out. And that's this whole detour of the main plot. I really like that in the film they cut all that out, both for a cleaner narrative, but also so that it's Michael Sr. who is bringing all this fury down upon Rooney. Mm -hmm. And the scenes where he and Rooney realize that they're going to have to do violence to each other, but they really don't want to, is really heart-wrenching. It's compelling. Yeah. The fact that it starts off with Michael Sr. ambushing him in the middle of mass. They go down to the basement of the church, and they have that wonderful conversation. Mm-hmm. There's a bit where Rooney says, I will mourn son I lost. I like that it's ambiguous whether he's talking about Connor or Michael Sr. Mm -hmm. That whole scene has a lot of subtleties going on. Yeah, the way the film plays up the adopted son relationship that Michael Sr. has with Mr. Rooney is really good. There's this tension between Connor and Michael because of it, and you can see that as a motivating factor for all the violence that happens. It's, there's also that line. There are only murderers in this room. Which is great. So good. I will say, I'm kind of sad they cut out the whole thing from the comic where Michael Sr.'s been shot and his son has to choose between taking him to a hospital or a church because he knows he's probably not going to make it. And sticking to a church, he'll at least maybe go to heaven. It's a really fun character writing bit. I like this idea that the priests are just constantly aghast by all of this. I, I think that mostly comes down to how downplayed the religious tones are in the film in comparison to the comic yeah they're still there but it's not as overt exactly neither are strictly better or worse they're just different they're focusing on different aspects of the story and that's fine in the same way removing the fbi plot cul-de-sac-y thing means that there basically aren't any law enforcement officers in the whole film apart from maybe some extras or whatever and i think that works really well it creates this lawless space where these characters can just do their wild west shit unimpeded and that makes it cleaner and you have to spend less time considering the pros and cons mm-hmm. i am going to be critiquey the film structure is kind of weird like i'm not sure if it's a pacing thing or if it's just like that it has four acts or something or what but it just feels like there's knowing where it's going it feels like it's a little bit front heavy and then things kind of go fast at the end yeah yeah I, w- I would definitely tend to agree it kind of has a lot of the same struggles in the first act that men in black does is there's just a lot there for setting things up 
and making sure you understand all these characters and their motivations. It's much more stretched out than the comic is, but I honestly feel that it's necessary. Mm -hmm. We need to have a better understanding of these characters because they are more well-rounded and more complex. I always say that nothing is happening. There's a lot of tension being built slowly, and so you, it gives you a clear sense of who are the important players, and so you're like, okay, what's going to give first? Yeah. I am kind of glad that the film removes most of the narration from the comic. Oh yeah, it's very bad. It's bad, and in the comic it casts Michael Jr. as an unreliable narrator, and I think that would have harmed the narrative of the film if that were the case. Yeah, I think there's definitely a version of this film that could have had an unreliable narrator in Michael, and that could have been really interesting. But I think it doesn't work for this that we have. I like the more God's eye view thing better. Yeah. I do think that it would have been more interesting instead of having Tyler Hecklin do the beginning and end narration, having a older actor like portraying Michael in the future doing it. But that's a very small criticism. I think it would have been fine without. It's only there at the beginning of the end. It's not particularly illuminating. We don't strictly need it. Mm -hmm. The film works just fine without. And I love Tyler Hecklin. But his delivery, well, it could be stronger. This is not the next day shipping delivery, if you know what I mean. I saw then, my father's only fear was that his son would follow the same road. And that was the last time I ever held a gun. And I mean, he's like 14, so I'm not going to give him too much shit. Right. One other thing, as I was watching through this film again, I realized that a lot of the stark lighting and the dark colors used throughout the film are specifically intended to be reminiscent of the black and white art style of the comic without having to go to that black and white art style itself. During the like nice slow tension scene where Michael Sr. has been sent to deliver the letter to the club owner and the club owner has to shoot the messenger, the build of the music in the next room is really good. I love how well the tension rises. <laughs> Although I'm kind of sad it wasn't like in the comic where they're singing When the Saints Come Marching In while Michael Sullivan is shooting a lot of dudes. I enjoy that juxtaposition, but yeah, whatever. Again, religious overtones. Yeah, still works. That said, speaking of music, I'm very weak to traditional Celtic music. And so that opening, I'm always like, hmm, um, I'm in the mood now. I wish they'd had more of that instead of just sort of generic music. They could have had like a everything is that Irish, Irish folksy tune. Irish folksy tunes could have been great. What, what are you doing, music guys? Because not everyone likes that. I know, there are people who like bagpipes and wrong people. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't have much else for Road to Perdition, so I think uh, let's make some votes. Yeah. I think my vote is going to Road to Perdition. Yeah, I think same. Men in Black is still a lot of fun, but I think Road to Perdition is just, there's less icky underlying themes to it. Mm -hmm. I just really like the characters. They're strong. Yeah. I knew going in that this was going to be a little bit weird because they're movies that are being made from very, very different perspectives. Men in Black is specifically there to to entertain, to be commercially successful. Road to Perdition is meant to be poignant and is supposed to tell a compelling story that makes you think and it's very focused on being a work of artistry. And I'm not giving it to Road to Perdition just because it's more artistically interesting and complex, but that's definitely a part of it. That said, I don't want to disparage either of these films. They both took comics that were 
only okay and elevated them to really strong heights. Mm-hmm. I'm also not going to lie. Part of my vote is definitely because I feel Road to Perdition needs a win over Men in Black after what happened with Men in Black 2. Okay, he's a Balchinian. Cheers to that. So, with that vote cast, we can start looking forward to next week. What do we have coming up? Once again, Daniel Craig is joining us in Cowboys and Aliens versus Dennis the Menace. <laughs> As uh, you do. Part of me is a little sad that Men in Black is not going up against Cowboys and Aliens. Yeah, right? <laughs> That's honestly an ideal mashup, and if we had been curating these brackets, that probably would have happened a long time ago. Yes. Oh. And as one more bit of bookkeeping. We realize we have an omission on our bracket. The Adams Family started as a comic and should have been on this bracket pretty high up there. Adams Family should have been seating about, I believe, number three or number four on our bracket. Mm-hmm. However, the website I was using to construct the bracket, Box Office Mojo, did not list the Adams Family under comic book adaptations. This is a call out. While I'm going to place some of the blame on the website for not being as complete as it should be, I should have done my due diligence and double-checked everything. Because we have inadvertently snubbed the Adams Family, it will definitely be coming up as one of our what-ifs after the bracket. If you want to be sure to catch our thoughts on those two films, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Podbean, and Spotify. Until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.